Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. This is the podcast where we speak to intriguing, fascinating, amazing people from across the comedy globe that will inspire us, make us laugh and make us chase this comedy passion on our own terms. Now today's guest, my God, he is a man who came all the way from Taiwan to the UK and he was like, yo, I'm an accountant and a comedian. I'm going to conquer the UK comedy world. <laughs> no, he's, 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 he's an emerging comic. He's smashing Vegas. He's one of the best hosts you could have on the planet. He is absolutely amazing. Please welcome a good friend of mine, fellow Asian, Kwan. Uh, hi, hi. It's actually Kwan Wen. I never corrected you, but my preference is to have my first name fully addressed, not shortened. Okay, fine. <laughs> We're going to do it properly. Right. That didn't happen. We're going to call him Kwan Wen. Yes. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me, Marvin. What's been happening, man? It's, it's, it's very warm. Is, is the temperature like it is in... No. Is it the temperature like it is in Taiwan? Yesterday, yes. Um, I was just out because, you know, we, we just gone past the record-breaking day that was yesterday, the 19th of July. And I was out on Monday, which is 18th of July, when it was reaching 34, close to 36. And I was walking my local path. So, oh, this is all right. I mean, the breeze is still cool because in Taiwan, the wind in summer is proper like hot wind and it just wrapped you up like clean film and with a certain level of humidity. But yesterday it was rough. I really feel like at home in a way you could feel you can find an egg on, on the sidewalk or the pavement, however you call it here. And yesterday was closed. The difference is back home, everywhere you go indoors pretty much there be air conditioning, um, even a little noodle shop, um, any retail store or everyone's house or office basically here, you only get that in a shopping mall or in offices. I believe a lot of people actually bothered to go into the office to work yesterday, just to have the air con and not having air con is a difficult bit because it's the residual heat in your bedroom at, uh, at night that's the most difficult. And um, I didn't dare to have the window wide open when I was asleep because my body and probably my blood is very sweet or I eat too much meat. So there's a very high acidic level. I attract mosquito and also the insects to bite me. So I always close my window fully before I go to sleep. So it was a nightmare. I think I woke up three times last night. I changed, I changed my pajamas as well because I was sweating so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, fair enough. I mean, yeah, I mean, what what kind of mos the mosquitoes must be different in character to different parts of the world? Because in France, they, they they seem to like the English blood. You know? No, but you have to be careful because the mosquitoes are migrating. So with global warming, the UK is getting warmer and warmer. And while certain English people are happy to say that, oh, I'll bubbly, I'll wine. Now, the, the champagne area in France is gonna not going to produce the best champagne. It's going to be England. That's the oh. irony of history, right? But... On the other side, because it's a double-edged sword, that means that you're going to have all the annoying insects from places you're associated with warmer climate. That's things you only uh, expect to see in Spain and Italy. They're not going to appear around your house and they're going to bite you and they're really, really irritating. But the good thing is, Kwan, when is that you will see you will see people like, you know, everyone has their own taste. You see women in bikinis, you see men with their tops off. This is only the start. Wait until you have to ration the use of your water. Uh, okay. 
Oh, come on, Quan. You know, if you see, if you see, you, you, you're enjoying the sights. Come on. I'm not, I'm not enjoying that. <laughs> if anything, I think people take off your, especially men here, they take off your clothes too easily in public. And you have to remember for every fit man with a six pack, there are some, <laughs> there are some uncle, there are some dare and an Ian without any self-awareness and happily live their beer belly and very hairy bag and <laughs> with all the imperfection on their skin. Even though I'm most trying to say, hey, there's no fat shaming, everybody's beautiful. Sometimes <laughs> looking at those bodies, like, I don't think that's exactly true. Maybe 90% of bodies are beautiful. So. Fair enough. <laughs> but I mean, but in Taiwan, you probably have that as well, don't you? You know, like lots That's of... one of the reasons I'm here. I'm fed up with summer back home. And basically, it's not full season. It's summer, and the brief period is not summer. I've made a pledge to myself. I do not visit my family outside the months between sort of mid to end October to February. That's the only time I can put up with going back to Taiwan. Anywhere, anyone else outside that, sort of region um, is too hot for me. For me, it's, it's not just summer, it's inferno. I, I can't put up with it because it's just not that it's hot. My city, the capital city, Taipei, is in a basin. So the whole city is encircled by mountain rain and it traps the heat and you just feel like you live in an oven. <laughs> just, you just slowly roast it like roast beef throughout the day. It's so hot. It is really, really hot and uncomfortably hot. And having lived here for such a long time, I could not put up with the heat as much as my mates back home do. And I remember one time, for whatever reason, I went back around May or June. And after a few days, they got I didn't get rashes, but my skin felt very uncomfortable. So I went to the dermatologist. He then said to me, you're just not, your skin is no longer able to resist and put up with the heat anymore. And I said, are you joking? I was born here. Like I was born proper Taiwanese. I, I will always be in Taiwanese. So he's like, yeah, but have you lived abroad? But yeah, okay, for a few years. Okay, so basically your skin got used to a more comfortable climate and is no longer used to um, this terrible heat and with very very high level of humidity it's very uncomfortable genuinely very uncomfortable so you become a, used to the fish and chips and full english breakfast no that's a reason i wanted to live in europe i mean when i was a kid <laughs> when i was a kid is known for one of those areas in the world with good climate in summer and i i'm not afraid of cold weather i can put up a really cold winter I just think I need to wrap myself up. And then if there are sort of uh, heating inside, indoor, that's absolutely fine. All I cannot put up with is a very humid and hot summer. That's why I moved to the UK. But now I feel cheated because when I was much younger, Europe was known for breezy, cool summer, but it's not catching up because of climate change. So, mm. Mm. so with Taiwan being a certain weather and the UK being a certain weather, what was it about like the amalgamation of your Taiwanese upbringing and like coming into the UK that made you want to become a comedian like you work in accounting like were you like the manager or boss that would crack jokes and have people in fits of laughter and you're like oh they said yo Quan Wen you should be a comedian it's a long story I was an accountant when I came to this country I didn't know I would become one I had no idea I had to become one so I was um I was a student when I came here and I studied politics and economics. 
and I had nothing, nothing in my life. I mean, apart from the fact that my mom wanted me to study accountancy, I didn't study accountancy. I studied journalism as my undergrad sort of discipline program subject, how I record it. So I did journalism and then I sort of um, pivoted a bit to wider social sciences. So I put a bit more focus on politics and economics. So when I came to the UK, um, I was studying a master's degree, but then I decided to, no, it's not that I decided to, because I came to the UK with a view of staying here. It was a long story. I had a, I had a French ex, so I knew him when I was exchange student in Paris. And um, I decided that French people, they're pretty annoying. Not French people, I think <laughs> they are cunts basically. So then I decided I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't going to try to stay in France, but I made a promise to my then ex-boyfriend, I would come back to Europe. So we had a, we had a plan. So both of us going to leave our own country. We will live in a third country together. And for convenience purposes, we decided it was going to be UK. So I would try to apply for a master degree in London. The natural tendency at that time for Taiwanese students, the first country you want to go normally would be United States, which had been a plan when I was a child. So, okay, one day I'm going to do an English postgraduate degree and it has to be United States. But those were the time when George W. Bush was the president. So it wasn't the best rep best time for United States as a brand. But if you look at the politics right now, you think this is certain nostalgia. I wish we could have George W. Bush. <laughs> but that's why I didn't go to California. I tried to apply for a school in Boston or New York. I came to London instead. And that's why. But then I want to find a job and realize you need a work permit um, if you were not a EU citizen, how much has changed since then. So. I had to look for a job they would be happy to take on non-EU citizens. That means a certain skill shortage. And that's how I became an accountant. It was completely by accident. Ah, just yeah. like, so very Asian, very sort of German in a way, very tactical when like. Yeah, yeah, I deliberately, Sean, I try not to do accountancy, even though my parents, my family want me to. I thought that's not where my passion is. That's not what I'm interested in. So I started journalism, but I'm not a native English speaker. And it's already hard enough for normal British people without any connection, without a famous dad to get into journalism in this country, right? So obviously I'm not going to be able to be given, be granted a work permit to stay in the UK to become a, a trainee a journalist. So then I thought, okay, what are the profession that will actually actively recruit uh, non-EU citizens? And it turns out these are the investment banks, the consultancy firms, and the big four, uh, big accountancy firms. And I actually got into not the accountancy department, I got into the tax department in one of the big four company, uh, but you had to study tax and accountancy at the same time. So I got actually two professional qualification. I'm a tax advisor as well as an accountant, but to make it easier, I normally just say I'm an accountant, yeah. But you're with the, as you say, the big, the, I know that in accountancy, because I've got an account, like there's four big qualifications that you get, like the most respected in the UK. Yeah. I got, got the, I got a Scottish one. Ah. <laughs> I didn't get the, I didn't get the ICAW. There's the Institute, Charter Institute of England and Wales. And they're, um, the people who are certified are called ACA. 
and I'm called CA, I'm a chartered accountant. So that's from the Scottish Institute. So part of me always worried that, oh, if Scotland does get independent, does that mean that my qualification will not be recognized in the UK anymore? I don't know, maybe it will. It doesn't, I don't really bother me right now. Mention that as a bit brother. <laughs> now, so, but now you're gonna tell me to F off in this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Now, um, there's a there's a assumption that they say that accountants are boring. Like, how did you get into comedy? Like, what's the truth about accountancy? Because people, there's so many myths go around about this and that. I'm sure that with accountants, that's not the case. And like, what what what? How did you, with your background in Taiwan and like, growing up as a child and like working accountancy, is there any way in those two things have shaped you as a comedian? And what led you to becoming a comic? Mm, you're actually blending in different questions at the same time. Let me see if I can um, answer them together. So the notion that accountants are boring, I think there is an element of um, truth in there. But instead of accountancy, I think it's more the fact that corporate people are boring. Because hmm. um, I go around, I come across accountants from the client side. Uh, for example, the in-house accountant. But I also, after after the, the first job, I moved into what they call the industry. So I, I work as an in-house accountant for many years for different companies as well. So I got in touch with people. They probably they are in sales, in marketing. They could be in HR, also department, even in product development. And at the first glance, you thought, oh, oh my God, all these non-accountants are so interesting. They're so much more fun than my finance colleagues. After a while, I realized that no, a lot of them are just equally boring. The fact <laughs> is, the larger the company, the more likely you're going to find uh, very um, soulless people. Um, they are, they are. I think it's not necessarily, they are not necessarily coaster. They may, may be very ambitious in life, but they adopted the best way of survival is to absolutely hang on and sort of suck the blood out of the organization, the corporate people. The bigger the organization, the more of those redundant annoying people are gonna find. So <laughs> a lot of accountants, because a company has to be a, of a certain level to recruit a certain amount of accountants in-house, right? Because you need to have enough profit to pay people who are not gonna generate profit, but just keep the organization going well. So most accountants come from a different certain size of organization. Chances are they will abide by that sort of corporate culture. I mean, accountants by definition is very difficult to be entrepreneurial unless they start a company or decide to join a startup. So I think the notion that accountants are boring may come from the fact that most accountants work a fairly sizable organizations. And I have such disdain for corporate people. Because I, was, I was one, I was quintessentially one. So that's what I think. However, uh, I've noticed as time moves on, there are more people now in the workforce and they don't think they have to show their 100% dedicated to the job. For them, the job is just a job. So I also know a good amount of um, accountants, they have like a side project or they have hobby. They probably will run a side business on, on the, at the same time. They may be one of those sort of amateur um, bands. They play in open mic, but music night. And you can say these are not fabulous musicians, but even those people who don't do a accountancy job, they have a dream and they only do odd jobs in a day. A lot of them are very bad musicians as well. I don't think that the ratio is particularly higher when a bad musician is an accountant musician. So I think with the younger accountants, um, 
is changing. I don't think they're particularly that much more boring than other corporate people. So that's my first attempt at answering your mega complex question. Um, same question, how it led to me <laughs> being a comedian. Well, I knew when I was very, very young, when I was a kid in the primary school, and we would have certain very boring classes. So the way for teachers to spice it up. So we have we have one class, for example, it's called um, ethic or citizenship and morality, something like that. So basically it's a class telling you how you're supposed to be uh, how you're supposed to behave to be a decent citizen to your fellow citizens. Hmm. And that's so boring. It is so boring. The tutor would simply say, now uh, we're going to divide the class into five to six group and each crew going to pick a subject and you're going to write a little sketch, a scenario. You're going you're gonna to go out and improv and act something and say, how are we going to achieve uh, public hygiene, for example? So what are our individual responsibility to achieve the collective goods. And this kind of boring class was one of my favorite because I could allow my creativity to run wild, you know, in the middle of all the math exercise, all the other boring academic requirements. And I used to enjoy writing those little sketch and becoming one of the lead actor in my little group. But that pretty much finished after I finished primary school because from our middle school onward, it's all exam, 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 exam. So I've forgotten about that. And, um, I think when I was in Taiwan, there was a cable channel that used to show Seinfeld. It wasn't very well known in Taiwan. I think the first proper mega hits of US sitcom would have been Friends. Probably before that, I love Lucy or, or um, Golden Girls, but none of them achieved the level of success of Friends. But before that, uh, Seinfeld was broadcast on the art cable channel, but it didn't achieve the commercial success. But I found that program, I absolutely loved it. And I noticed Jerry Seinfeld always did a bit stand up at the start and at the end of each episode. I never knew what that was, but I found it fascinating. Uh, there's a there's an art form very similar in the Chinese culture, but it sometimes it takes two people to talk together and they have to talk in a certain way. Um, they are double acts, but whatever they say need to rhyme. And they also typically speak in a very sort of put up Beijing accent. Whereas when I watched Seinfeld, he was just very casually talking a person like someone on his own, talking to a microphone. I never quite understood what he was. And then after I came to the UK and I became accountant and I started working, and there's an um, insurmountable of hollow inside that was eating me up. I was really, really bored with my job. But I was grateful for having that job because he gave me a legal right to stay. It was paying the bills. So I decided to go enjoy London and cities. I tried to find a lot of different things to do. And that's when you could still find Time on Magazine as a printed version. I would just go find things to do. I found some of the theater too pretentious and I found comedy to be something I was drawn to. So I started going to watch Senna comedy show as a fan, as a live comedy show as a fan regularly after I started working here. And that's when I remember, ah, oh, that's what Jerry and Seinfeld did. Oh, so it is called Senna comedy basically. So it's something that was reignited years and years later. I always had a thought, maybe I should do it. I talked to some really good colleagues who are good friends of mine at my first job. They always tried to encourage me to do it, but I was a very prudent person. I just thought, but how? How do I gonna get to that level of hilarity on stage? It's impossible. So I always put out the idea um, until I had some sort of third light be like crisis and I quit my job. And I had a year of sabbatical, and that's when I started doing stand-up comedy. Sorry, it's a very long answer, but hopefully I gave you what I wanted. 
Now, it's, well, it's funny you say that because when you come on stage, you come across very confident and ballsy. And like when you're interacting with a lot of us, you're very confident, like very, you know, you, you wouldn't think that. That in what you way? Were, like not confident on the with comedy and like you didn't because you come across as someone that really believes in themselves and really. Yeah, but there has to be a stage persona in there, isn't it? And uh... but even off stage as well, like when we we're interacting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with the hecklers night, that was brilliant. I, I know you didn't like the show, but bloody hell, the way you dealt with people there was fucking hilarious. Yeah, but that's because I already had some experiences. And I think maybe you're right in that my upbringing it, it affected me that I probably would have started doing comedy a bit sooner um, if I had been born here and I was raised in a purely Western culture. Whereas where I came from, we were told that do not speak until you're fully prepared to speak. Do not speak until you have a point to make. And that's when I go on sort of summer language school somewhere. I always, I was always fascinated by the American students. Like, why are they so eager to raise their hand? They don't even raise their hand. They just talk. Like, where's the Asian student waiting to give them permission to be able to speak? The Americans, they, they, student, they just speak. But sometimes like with all the wobbling, what exactly the point you're trying to make? And for me, that's a cultural difference because our upbringing is you shouldn't inconvenience other people. You shouldn't waste other people's time before you're ready or you think what you have is ready. And that's why when I thought, how am I going to do it? Like, I obviously won't be good enough. So so I, I kept putting it off. Even after I decided to first give it a go, I took another, it took me another two or three months of proper preparation in that I went to different open mic. So I studied stand-up comedy in Berlin, basically. There's another story. So I went to different venues to observe how, what comics are doing. And I observed which venue is probably the most newcomer friendly. And I decided on the venue I'm about to start. And then I go back another twice or three times just to see how it works. And then I signed up and I rehearsed my script over and over. I even got a friend and I did this call. I just run through the entire script with her. And um, that that's probably influenced by my upbringing, I would say, because um, we were never good enough, basically. And our parents instilled in us that you're probably never going to be good enough. So you have to do more. You have to prepare to the point that there's no more preparation possible before you do something. Um, I don't know whether it's good or bad, but that that's how it happened in my case. Yeah. And well, one thing I get with my mom is that she can I feel like I'm a trophy, but you know, the family relatives will get around have dinner celebrations and they have a little, you know, how like American football players you see in high school, they go, Oh, I'm big. I did this. Or I went and did that. I feel like Asians do it, but they do it in a different way. Like my mum would, like my auntie would say, Oh, my, my daughter's a doctor. Oh, my son's this. One other person will say, Oh, this one, this, this. And because I wasn't really fitting a lot of the age of stereotypes, my mum would bloody lie. <laughs> oh, what did she say about you? <laughs> she would, well, she would say, um, oh, she would make all sorts of, she would say something, but it wouldn't be um, the truth. So I did moment... find that part of Asian culture quite pathetic, though. I think we should criticize when criticism is due. Okay, I'll say it on the podcast. She would say that I'm working as a, web developer whatever all of that but yeah it 
when I was doing, I wasn't necessarily, it wasn't a degree that I chose to do. It was something that my parents forced into it. So I wasn't passionate and I wasn't naturally talented at it. And it was taking so much more work that I decided I'll just be a mindless robot and I wouldn't be able to do any work into comedy, which is what I enjoy doing. So I thought, screw that, I'll just do comedy and I'll do something else on the side. But it's, yeah, she lies to a lot of my relatives and says that I do another job. Yeah, they lie and they refuse to admit they lie, just a bit like Boris Johnson. The year when I was not working in Berlin, and obviously my mom, some of her friends, I doubt it's friends, it's more like acquaintance, and just that, oh, how's your son doing? And they don't really ask in a way they care about me. They bloody don't. They are just networking for my mom and they are being nosy. And I say to my mom, my mom was like, go find a job, do something. So now I'm enjoying my time off. And she's like, how am I supposed to tell my friends? And I said to her first, they're not your friends, right? The minute your business fail, half of them gonna flee. And if you try to contact them, they will never, never reply to you. That's the first thing you need to know. Secondly, I don't really care what I think. I mean, I don't, those, those are ugly, evil women. I don't really care what I think. They want to not just tell them I'm not working. I'm between jobs. And my mom then say she's going to tell them that I've been employed by a Berlin company, blah, blah, blah. And like the new sort of a CFO in a small Berlin company. I said, no, that is a lie. I haven't started. My mom said, no, it's not a lie. It's a constructed truth. No, I said, no, that is a lie. You can't, I forbid you from lying to those people because what if one of them happened to have someone like their nephew or their children also working in Berlin? They'll be like, oh, which company is Kwame working for? Why don't we catch up and have a meal? And I have to produce more lie because you're stupid lie. Just because you can't bear to <laughs> yes. get through that shallow point. Don't you dare drag me into your website. I don't know what she did in the end, but I had to specifically tell her not to lie. And then we had a big argument on the phone because she was thinking, how dare you embarrass me? And how dare you sort of uh, tell me what to do? I even talk back at me. And I just say, you've, you've, you've done some really more dubious thing and you don't even, you can't even face up to yourself. But in her upbringing is children should never disobey the parents. And that's why a lot of our conflicts come from. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's that quote, isn't it? Saying like, why are you, why are you getting a big flashy car? Why are you saying you do this to impress people that you don't even like? And that seems, seems to be a big thing in like, you know, that's the thing that West shares and East, East, the East as well. We try and impress people that we don't even like a lot of the time. I actually don't think it's that um, different in the end. Um, we are still trying to impress people we don't really like in this industry, for example. We're trying to impress other comedians. But why? I think yeah. the Asian culture have a extended family as a closely knit unit. So I think the sense of community is stronger in the Asian culture that you don't, you will particularly mind what they say. Whereas in the Western culture, you probably can just think that we are not that close anyway. But if someone's view is still gonna bother you, even though at, at least for Brit British people, there are certain people, not necessarily in your immediate friends group or your extended family, but there are someone else's opinion may still affect you and influence what you're gonna do. I don't think it is that different it's only different because how you see who is in your closer social position that is different mm. and yeah i don't know how to better put it um i 
as 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 in I don't know about gen because you say general Western culture is a bit of generalization. At least for no. British people, they are not that Britain, clear. Britain, Britain, and and the East, I should say, because I don't know necessarily what it's like in America or what it's like in. I can make an assumption, but in in Britain, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But but also probably the difference is um uh I don't know though. For for British people, do they always need to be academically excellent or I'll I'll be honest, right? When my mum does that with the relatives, I feel like a like a trophy wife to a rich millionaire. Yeah. Like just being paraded round as trying to impress other people. Yeah, I don't know where that came from, but that is true in the Asian culture. Uh, you actively try to outbid and outperform people you know by competing and comparing your kids to theirs. I, I don't know why, but part of it maybe because they have nothing else they can really. That that's also curious because I thought my mom runs quite a successful business, so she shouldn't have to. But she kind of needs to prove that not only she does well. Whatever she pushes out her vagina also functions really well. So it's not just her hard work, but it's also it's her inter intellect and her genes. And um, I was the so there's a there's like a top university. It's probably more difficult to imagine in the UK because you have a, a a range of good university. But in Taiwan, you have a clear. There's a best university called Taiwan University. And none of my cousins from my mom's side could get into that university. And um, already you can see the, the sort of preference because they are cousins that went to vocational school, their cousins that went to high school, but didn't get into public sort of state university. So in Taiwan, state university are the better one. So in our system, if you don't get to the best school, you're financially punished because you have to pay to get into private school, typically are not as good as the good public ones. So you have to pay more and it's less prestigious. For those who study really, really hard, you can pay less tuition if you get into the best school. But the best university didn't have any program I fancy. So they either I could either choose to do business school or finance and accounting in the top university, or I have to do Chinese literature. For me, that's too remote to classic, <laughs> I say I'm more interested in mass communication and journalism and a top university didn't recognize journalism as a subject. I can study sociology, I can study politics, but I just don't think they are practical enough. So I say to my mom, I don't want to go to the top university. I want to go to, I think for um, political science, consider the second best, but it's not the top one. My grandpa was very upset for a while because my grandpa said he has 13 grandchildren and none of them ever study in a top university. Oh, actually one of my cousins did, but he studied dentistry. So my grandpa was upset. So well, my paternal grandma was upset because none of her grandchildren ever get to the top university. I was the only one most likely to get there and I chose not to. And then my maternal grandpa was upset because I refused to study a doctor degree, PhD. And I was like, I have no nothing interests me to the point. I want to give up a period of my life to study in PhD. Why would you want to? And he was just like, but this is my bucket list. I just wish before I close my eyes in a, in a in a coffin, one of my grandchildren gets stuck. <laughs> 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 
you know, 10, 20 years ago, some people's life decision would have been affected by one life on their grandparent. Okay, to make sure my grandfather can close his eye with peace and the confidence, I'm going to study a PhD. That may be the reason why some people Oh, for <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Sometimes I even forget I've done a master's degree because it is so irrelevant. The non-master's degree for me was a ticket to be able to apply for a British job, right? I need to actually study in the UK because I did my undergrads in Taiwan. But sometimes I went back to to Taiwan, I hear my mom sort of bragging about, oh, you know, my son, he has done this, that master's degree in one of the top British schools. Oh, I completely forgot. One of the things I want to ask. So, yeah, the, 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 yeah, it's just one of the things is because you're also into you're gay as well as does that does that have issues in Taiwan as well? Not like, now. Uh, when I was growing up, when I was growing up a bit, uh, definitely not now. I was. Um, it's astounding how much Taiwan has changed. I didn't, I even predicted it would not happen in my lifetime and it just happened so fast, yeah. Did, was there any challenges like growing up with it and like, did you have to hide from your mom or did, was yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. And then she wasn't nice about it. She found it out somehow because she inter, she intercepted my private mails. <laughs> she intercepted them. She intercepted my private mails. She's not apologetic about it. And she, <laughs> She came to me waving, like my friend, <laughs> my friend was coming. I'm just glad my mom doesn't know the mom of the other friend. She would have phoned them with a little sort of snatch. And <laughs> she's like, you're hanging out with a gay man. Do you know how disgusting that was? And yeah, I couldn't forgive my mom for a few years before. We're, we're all fine now. But yeah, she wasn't, she wasn't great about it. Um, if any sort of shameful behaviors, parents not being able to accept their kids as LGBT, my mom should be put as an example. But we can say how she eventually turned around due to my perseverance. Um, ah, so you were like, listen here, sweetheart. No, she's still trying. She's still trying. Like, can't just date a woman, make me happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom as well does it as well in terms of like jobs. She's trying to force me to do things that make her look good. She treats trying well, to... No, but there is a point that um, so long as you're financially in independent, like let's say, yeah. so if you actually have to seek financial help from your mom, then you can't be that critical. That's all I'm saying. But yeah. if you're yeah. absolutely financially independent, um, then your mom, whatever she said, is just white noises. Well, actually, yeah, noises, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a bit there. Come on. <laughs> no. In the UK, did you face any issues with it? Because I think I remember you posted a while ago that some guy called you a, 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 a offensive term for being gay. And then you said, do you want to have a fight? And then he walk, walked away or something. I can't remember. There have been a lot of um, nuisance. Uh, sometimes it's because I'm gay. Sometimes because I am um, Asian. Asian. And sometimes I don't know whether which one is the more likely reason and i also think that um british people like to paint a rosier picture of where society where their countries at and not being completely honest i have to say is is one of the more progressive countries in europe in general 
but shit things still happen. So I live in Southeast London and in the area, um, there's considered still a bit rough. It's being gentrified. But before I, I moved last year, before I moved, where I used to live was very close to Millwall Stadium. And there are some local kids. By that time, I think it's around 10 to 12 or 13. And um, when I walk home, if I, I had to learn, I would do, I, I would, I would come deliberately walk uh, a longer way home to avoid a certain spot. Because where the young kids uh, gather and the kids, when they see me, they just keep shouting, gay, 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 in a very, very sort of uh, negative way. And once I went to confront them, uh, they didn't seem apologetic. And until I say, yeah, okay, I'm gay. So what? I mean, I enjoy sucking your dead. Big <laughs> and I didn't push further because I wanted to go further. So yeah, yeah your, your, your father's a fucking pedo. And then he does nothing real in your death, your mom's marriage, right? Your dad enjoying getting the sort of uh, gay hookers on the app. Your dad. <laughs> no, I didn't do it. I was this close. I was this tempted to do it. <laughs> I knew that would destroy the kid. But I was really sad that do you not even feel ashamed if you produce and raise a kid to behave like this in public? And somehow yeah. in this country, it's always considered, you know, kids gonna be kids, last gonna be that. And this kind of behavior is not considered abhorrent. Like when you have a really unruly kids that bullying people, it's never the kid's problem. And it doesn't really consider to be the parents sort of failing or responsibility. And just say that the society must do more. I wish I agree. But what about those people that get bullied or get taunted? Um, I had the chance to do that. What I did in the, eventually, though, is I took a picture of the kids' family's cars. I took the nameplate and I said, I'm going to file a report accusing you guys of uh, bullying and harassment. And the kids start to panic. And they forced me, asked me to delete that picture. And we had a bit of row. Um, eventually, I deleted the picture, but I just never walked past that corner. And uh, recently, I had to go back to where my old flat used to be. When I was walking on one of the quieter roads, there was a, a group of kids, five or six of them, they cycled past and just hit me in the head. I was less speechless. Where does that come from? That was the first one. And his mate that caught up and they were saying to me, oh, sorry, did our friend hit you? I said, yeah, I thought they were trying to apologize on his behalf or do something else. But the rest of the kids, as soon as they caught up, their face often turned evil. You know, like in a Hollywood movie, when it turns out that who is meant to be your friend help you turn out to be the villain or the accomplice, they just sort of struck, struck my, strike my hands and sort of uh, knock off whatever I was holding so they falls on the the road, which not something breakable, fine. But I was, basically I went through a second wave for sure. And I just thought, where do these kids come from? Like, what do their parents do? Do they have any idea their kids were behaving like this? And if they do, do they even feel vaguely ashamed or ra raising little monsters like this? And I just thought, there are, there are kids suffering horrible life elsewhere in this world and you guys are probably bored so you go around bullying people i know that you might your family might be going through something but don't you think it would be much fairer for the world if you guys are don't know sent to afghanistan or the front of ukraine and those much better behaving kids should have a better life i don't know and once i went to a seaside town in worthing uh, so, so last year, someone egged me 
in Birmingham. Ah, yes, that's what I remember. Yeah, I was standing outside the park reading something on my phone and someone just sort of suddenly ran through me with this sort of like really shrieky, disgusting laughter and just ate my head. I made that into a joke, but I don't think I've always um, considered myself completely at peace with that experience. I'm trying to get over it. When I was retelling the history of that in a town in, in Worthing, after the gig, an older guy, I think in his 50, approached me after the gig. And he initially said, you don't really live in Bermondsey, do you? And I thought he was about to compliment me that how come I'm a, I'm a foreigner? I know like London that well. But then his face turned uglier and uglier. And he started to threaten me, say that, don't you dare talk shit about where I come from. That is my town, something like that. And, and I, I, I suddenly realized what he was trying to do. And I froze and I looked at him and say, excuse me, sir, but your voice, your tone, your behavior just proved my point. So in my story, I was telling something that happened to me truly. It wasn't something I made out to tarnish the brand of South Bermondsey. Or, or people living there. It's something that truly happened to me. And he was trying to say, I was trying to paint the picture of South Spermancy being a place filled with thuckish behavior and thugs, right? But he was using a suckish tone to threaten me and say that if anything, you're just proving my point. There are still people like you in Bermancy being unfriendly to minority or people like me. And and he wasn't happy. He went away, but he came back. I say the same thing again with his finger in my face. And that's when I lost it. I say, don't you dare talking to me like that. Take your fucking finger away. Because I told you, it, when I first came to the UK, I wasn't this sort of, I wouldn't say violent, but I wouldn't have fight back. I wouldn't have fought back. I would just let whatever shit happen to, happen to me. And then I was actively accusing him. I said, you're a racist and fucking fuck. Take your fucking finger away. I don't you dare talk just because you were born here earlier. Don't mean you have the child, the right to talk to me like that. So I was accusing him back. And I think he was even more shocked or maybe agitated. Maybe he was drunk, but he didn't expect me, a peaceful looking Asian guy who he thought he can easily bully by talking back to him. So he was getting close and he was getting redder and redder, you know, like a proper red piece of red meat. And his mate tried to control him, take him back and told me not to rile him up, uh, not to escalate. So they kind of blame me and his mate sort of grabbed me away. I said, don't put your fucking dirty hands because I wasn't the one to blame. If he came to a comedy night, he couldn't take a joke like mine. Mine was, I was based on my story on the truth. If he can't even take a joke like that, he does not belong in a comedy club. But what really lost it was a young English guy. Initially, he was trying to intervene and just like separated us because he thought it was one of those incidents and surely his country cannot be that bad because he initially heard our argument from the other side of the room. When he came closer to try to separate us and realized how much that older guy was sort of threatening me, he got very upset. <laughs> he could not face up to the fact that there are people that can threaten a foreigner, a minority in such a vicious tone. When I've not done something particularly nasty, like, it didn't continue to say like, oh, all people live in Bermondsey is horrible. I just say, you know, I live in South London. It may be my own fault to move into a gentrified ghetto, forget it is still a ghetto. That, that's the level of language I was using, right? So he proved my point and he threatened me. And the young English guy could not imagine 
probably saw it first time in his face because he's like a young white English guy. It doesn't happen to him as often as it happened to people like me. So when he saw that, I said, oh my God, this is how ugly my society can be. He completely lost it. He almost punched the other guy. And the friends of the youngest, I had to help him back. <laughs> On my way back to London, I shared a train with one of his friends and he was like, his friend was probably, probably upset about what he saw. Uh, that day but this has been my experience I think after 2016 it definitely been worse but before that people think something that are considered as banter uh as just like um harmless thing and what happened mostly is for example if I'm trying to take a picture or something random because I used to write a blog and people see me they just think that I'm one of those stupid annoying Japanese or Chinese tourists are taking pictures all the time, which I think is a bit hypocritical because once you know you have smartphone, every single person from every single country is taking pictures all the time. It's just because in the past, the, the appliance, the gadget were not quite as good and in the Western society, right? People feel it was completely all right if they just come close and scare me like, what? When I'm about to take a picture, so my hand will shake and I will be shocked, I'll be surprised. I'll be scared for a brief second. And this kind of behavior in this country is considered fine. Even if you're an adult, like if you're like a primary school kids, you're still growing up, you need to be disciplined to be told it's fine. But 20 something, 30 something people do that and it's considered harmless. It's okay, it's a banter, it's a cheeky behavior. And part of me is still think, oh my God, you really make me miss my country because um, you're not acting like a mature proper adult. And this kind of behavior is completely fine here. I don't get it. I still don't. I just put up with it. And that kind of microaggression built up my anger more and more and more. I've not unleashed it. But when a major incident happens, sometimes I completely lost it. I remember <laughs> I, was, I was on strand and someone scared me again. And I lost it. I went to grab his, um, his color, say, got a problem. And I say that you may think I'm camp, but I'm big. If you want to fight, you'll fucking lose it. And his mate had to intervene and say, oh, look, 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 he was just joking, man. He was just joking. So why are you overreacting? And they had to separate me from, from me and him. And my friends were also putting me back. Um, if I were living in Taiwan, this would not have happened. But it's just like day in, not day in, day out, but also regular accumulation of micro dosage or microaggression. That's really irritating. And that's what I think that I don't think British people are completely honest with themselves. They like to think they're the least racist country, but it's not that nice. I mean, it's definitely not the worst. Um, I've lived elsewhere, but it's not that nice. You know? And also somehow there is a notion that if you do something to East Asian people, um, that's completely fine because they are not underprivileged. And the sad thing is, it's not just white people that do it to East Asian people. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's from, all different, it's from all different races. And other races that consider themselves to be the victim and minority, they're just equally bad sometimes to East Asian people. I think it's worse because like you know, you're, you're, like, you know what it's like to be a minority. Why are you doing it to someone else? But in America, it's worse. Like You can't go to certain areas if you're a different skin color. But it's just like people, it's effectively what it is, is people taking out on people that they think they can take out on without handling their problems in the proper way. It's because it's, it's weak people. At the end of the day, people who are being like 
racist and taking issues with people because of surface level characteristic. They're weak people. That's that's what it is. Yeah, I don't know how to fix it. I mean, I've had, uh, I used to run a, a comedy night in Bermondsey and there were even one month, there was one woman who came in, who was a bit drunk, who was doing this sort of squinty eye gesture to me. And I froze, I was like, you think it's funny? I mean, I was, I was trying to control the situation and I was doing the break and I told her, honey, you're too drunk to stay in that room. And she was still laughing nonstop. And when, when she did the thing with the eye, her mate didn't respond right away. It's only when she noticed that my facial expression changed, my tone changed, her mate started to apologize. Oh, she's just a bit drunk. Um, I honestly, if she had not been a woman, I would have punched her straight in her face. <laughs> now she fully deserved it. I didn't do it, but it's just, there are always excuses, you know? Oh, it's just, it's a harmless banter. She's just being cheeky. She's just drunk. And, and that's when I think, I still think that people are not completely honest with themselves here sometimes. I mean, but as a comedian, you have to, because so you're still entertaining a customer, you're still entertaining a show. So you try to make the best of it. But somehow just like, God, you really should look a mirror in yourself. You look quite pathetic at this point, but I don't know. Yeah, there's some weird things. I remember there was one time at the comedy store, I saw some comic at the gong show. He was a black comic and he, he called himself Asian fetish. And all he did were racist Asian jokes and he got gonged off in 10 seconds. Oh, I that's thought, good. That, I, I mean, there's some justice served. No, but I thought it was a bit, why would you think it was funny? Who you been hanging out with that where they thought that was like, what, what's, what's going on? No, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's a lot of, um, there's people that don't seem to be aware of things. And a lot of no, but I think aren't. the difference is this generation of Asian people no longer want to put up with it, right? In the past, yeah. when they do that, you just, okay, we're going to keep our head down. But now people do that, you point it out. Like Tina Fey, for example, she apologized to Black people how they have been portrayed, but she still refused to admit that she likes to take easy Asian jail for easier, easier love. And it's, I think it's the only the younger generation, Asian Americans are to point out, no, Tina Fey, you kind of have a, an Asian problem. And I think she's still not really acknowledging it. But if you put the criticism out there and make it stronger, eventually, I think she will. And it's the same with everyone. I don't know if you remember, there was one year the Oscar theme was Oscar So White. And Chris Rock was hosting. So before Chris Rock was hit by Will Smith, right? Is that his most famous, most famous yeah. of deed is being hit by Will Smith. Before that, he was the host of Oscar for Oscar So White. And oh, MTV, yes, yeah. I remember. In the midterm, he made a joke. So, you know, they always bring out the accountant that sort of audit the, the votes. And he bring out two little Asian kids around nine, 10, and say that like these are each Asian Chinese looking kids, that these are our accountants. And then, and then he said, if you can't take the joke, um, feel free to contact Oscar. By the way, the phone you'll be using are made by them too. I have to say as a comedian first, those jokes are really hack, are really crap, right? Secondly, this is a night about celebrating the, the, the industry should be done with their one race. But it doesn't mean that when they consider black and white and this end. So he seemed to suggest you need to consider more black people, but that's it. Everyone else shouldn't matter. And when you're, if you are trying to say you can take the piss out of the East Asian people because you're not underprivileged, saying, hang on a second, in a show and a business uh, industry, 
it's even more difficult for Asian actors to get certain roles compared to Black actors, for example. So we shouldn't try to edge out each other, seeing who is more victimized. But when you try to come to a new sort of more idealistic world, you shouldn't exclude further group, but just by including yourself, that's a little bit pathetic. And I think that kid show he did was absolutely pathetic, not because you're making fun of, oh, the stereotype of Asian being an accountant, which is a bit ironic because I'm, I'm an accountant myself. But the fact that, did the kids even know, right? How, how could a kid consent to, it, it, is, it is not to comedian who joke about doing a sketch. You probably con those kids and con those parents how they're gonna be portrayed on stage. It's... That's the whole bit I wasn't comfortable with. So whenever, if it comes from Chris Rock and say, oh, we should try to achieve diversity or equal, I don't know whether he says that, but if it comes from him, it's absolute bullshit. It's, it's, um, I can't remember, it's 2016, 17 Oscar. You need to look back for a few years. I think it's with a lot of things, it's the way things are done is where the effect is. It's not what you do a lot of the times, it's often the way you do things. That, like what he did, that's what causes a lot of offense. It's not treated with respect or in a way that's meant to boost people up. It's to put people down. And it's not in a, in get, yeah, the way he did it. No, no, but he didn't think laughing at um, Asian American was putting people down. And that's the fundamental problem, right? Can you imagine having, so like example, oh, uh, we have our, what is that, our security guard. Are you just dragged two black kids out? Would you dare to do that? You wouldn't, but why would you feel okay to at least at our account who ordered out and with two East Asian kids probably don't know what they are being portrayed as. How does that make it okay? And I think that sort of joke he said that, I mean, the people you don't, it was so, with some people I know, we will tell some jokes and we'll push the boundaries a bit and we'll say things, but we're, it's in good jest and it's in, it's not to put anyone down. It's just that we can have a laugh and push it. But you have to really know someone well if you're going to go push it like that. I don't think you necessarily need to put someone else, but I think one thing is consistency. So, for example, it's Chris Trott did that, but if he's absolutely brutal in dissecting his own race, like he just is horrible to every single race, be it Native Americans or, or South Asian or East Asian or East European, if every single race, he's equally horrible. I think I'll be up for it. But he was there portraying, but look, why are you doing this to us, Black Americans, African Americans? And he turns around, he just massive bully to Asian American. That's what I call a double standard, right? I can accept their dark jokes. It's all about the context and the persona. If you just treat like John River, she treat most of the group, everyone is equal. No one can escape her vicious mouth. So they the make it consistent. But you can't sometimes play the moral high ground. And sometimes trying to, you can't have it both ways. I, I, I don't agree with that. No, no it's, been a, it's been an interesting chat, Quan. It's been fun. <laughs> what's, what's oh, I, oh, I'll call you Quan when, that, that's it. I'm always yeah. going to call you that from now on. Please do, yes. <laughs> um, so with comedy as a whole, like, what would you say, what do you love about comedy and what do you think comedy's, so I'm going to ask three questions. What do you think comedy's main purpose is? Um, what do you enjoy about comedy? And um, what, do you, what, what has comedy given you? Um, I think the first question is a bit pretentious to be answered by people from this industry. 
what's comedy's purpose? Make people laugh. I mean, it's a release. I mean, so say sometimes you have side benefit come from it, raising social awareness, but I think it shouldn't deviate from the fact that yes, it is an an art form if you want to put it in a very highbrow way. But people come to comedy night, they want to be entertained, they want to have a lot. as simple as that. I, I think it should stay the course. But then when you add sort of condition to it, they say that, oh, but um, within what parameters should this be operated? That's a separate discussion. But when it comes to the main purpose, comedy is to make people laugh. Hmm. What's your second second one? Sorry, I forgot. When you... what, why should someone do comedy? Why should, why, why, what, what? What may, what makes you keep doing comedy? What makes me doing comedy? Um, so why should someone do comedy? I think it's also a no question. If someone wants to do it, then they can do it. It's a free society. Um, <laughs> what makes me, yeah, it's, it's a weird question. I don't know what the question, why, why do make it good in comedy? I don't, for now, uh, it's fun. I feel like I'm progressing. I'm doing something that I found interesting. So I keep doing it, but it doesn't mean I'm my, so they are cost and benefit of doing everything. And I feel at the moment when I get out of comedy, it's more from what I feel like comedy is costing me. So I'm still doing it. Would I change it at a certain point? I don't know. I might as well, because believe it or not, when I studied accountancy, even though it was quite boring, there are elements of it I really enjoyed. For example, I have OCD tendency. So when I rearrange the file in alphabetical orders, <laughs> or I come across a very messy hard drive, I can really restructure things in a very hierarchical sort of organized way. I feel a little bit of satisfaction or I was from a small country and I was on international calls. Oh my God, I'm conducting business with people from a dozen different countries. That kind of shallow thing initially gave me a lot of satisfaction, but it didn't last long because they are not that meaningful. So at the point, comedy gave me the impression that I'm being creative. Uh, I enjoy the process from having a brief idea in my head and nurturing into a short gag. From that gag, I evolved that into a story and a story to include more gags until it become a complete set I can perform in a weekend comedy club. People come pay to see that and they think that it's okay for that purposes. So that process of uh, creativity or creation for me is satisfactory for now. Um, but I could also feel the marginal benefit of that same process being repeated, even though with different jokes, the same process. So it's sort of reducing slightly. So if you ask me in a five to 10 years time, would I still be doing comedy? I don't know. Maybe I won't, maybe I will, because I'm sort of changing into different direction, trying more different stuff. So there's still the diverse side of it but keep it going because otherwise you need to do something. And I quit my job last December. I can't just lie around watching so much daytime TV. I've watched so much daytime TV during a lockdowns. I can't put up with any more a place in a sun or antique row show. <laughs> so much of the, there's a reason why daytime TV are like daytime TV. When I watch that, I feel like I'm just waiting for my eventual death. <laughs> <laughs> It, it is pretty shit at the moment. I will say that. I mean, it's, it does seem that a lot of the good entertaining things are coming from like streaming platforms and from YouTube rather than TV itself now. Yeah, but then with YouTube, because what you have is for a specific channel, initially they um, are really good at one or two things. 
but they have to reinvent themselves by adding different format or different type of content, right? Otherwise, it becomes a bit one note, and after a certain while, it just feel ugh. It's yeah, it. But I mean, that's the way it is as an artist, though. We have to keep on changing. We have to keep adapting. And but we. That, that's what I would disagree with you. I wouldn't call myself an artist. I'll call myself an entertainer. This is a basic debate I've had with certain people. For I'm not getting it. I'm not getting a debate over that sort of term. <laughs> it, we, whatever it is, we are. We have to keep evolving. We have to have fun. We have to, and it's boring if you stay the same, like doing the same jokes, being the same again and again. I know some comics do that, but. It doesn't make it fun unless you're changing something or taking risks or doing something different. Yeah, so I can fully understand why some people um, will leave comedy having done comedy for a while and having done it relatively well, but they just decided they want to do something else in their life. I fully get it. Not saying I have exact tendency or uh, intention to do so, but I also feel that if I were to change course and do something completely different, I wouldn't feel like the time has been wasted. I've been enjoying doing comedy to this point. And if anything, when I had to go back for a different corporate job, I feel comedy made my interview skills better. I actually became better at corporate jobs interviews. Mm. So it's not an either or thing. Now, what would be the one piece of advice that you'd like to give life advice for whether it be a comedian or a person. Like, I mean, some of the things people say is like, just do things, don't worry about what people think. Don't bitch about other comics. Um, be positive. Um, some of us said, um, be careful about giving, like, comics aren't your friend, they're your colleagues. What's, what's your unique take on, like, if you're going to talk to the younger Kwan, Kwan now, or are you going to talk to a young, like, British Asian or anyone that's sort of in the West now growing up? How about, yeah, no, let's do this. If you're a young British Asian now, what advice would you give to them to, like, pursue what they want to do and to make the most of their life? Um, hmm, okay, um, two ways to answer it. Uh, first, I don't think it's necessary just to British Asian. So I... I don't feel fully qualified, but if I have anything from a perspective to add, I think you need to take care of yourself mental health wise. And I personally haven't started seeing any therapist, but I make sure when I'm going down a spiral, I identify the source of my um, depression or anxiety and deal with it early on. And it's either through chatting with friends or finding out who on social media it caused me to be unhappy and muted that account. So you need to be aware that your mood will be heavily affected by what's going on around you. But for everyone, the solution is different, right? For example, someone can just shut it down and say, I'm not trying to compare myself to the level of success of my contemporaries. That is the easy thing to say. But whether anyone, everyone can do it, then is, is highly unlikely. So I myself will become jealous or envy some other people that managed to achieve at a certain point in time. I'll be happy for them. But at the same time, I feel missing out. And what I do is I will make sure if people are over posting about they having achieved something, achieved something, 
I know sometimes I can't be that big a person. So what I do is instead of doing anything else, I would just mute their social media account for a good while. I just can't bear to see it. So I have to protect myself, not because I'm not happy for them. I'm happy for them, but I wish I were in their position as well. And I know myself, I can't fully sort of separate that thought. So that's why I have to manage um, how much I get on social media and how much I watch other people break about stuff. I also evaluate people around me. And I feel like if someone, um, when they talk to you, is always about bitching and spreading negativity, then I just make sure I keep a certain distance from this kind of people. So I don't have a, a blanket approach, but I do think that um, it's even worse in the comedy industry compared to the corporate world. Because at least in the corporate world, how much you hate the HR department, there is HR department. There is certain procedure. There's definitely sort of backstabbing and bitching, but the organization will have a certain structure which you can find the tools and whatever help you needed. In this industry, because everyone else is sort of operating themselves, you're pretty much on your own. And there isn't a clear HR policy or an HR contact that will help you. So you need to take care of yourself, your mental health first. Now, one of the things I want to ask in that, how am I doing so far? <laughs> in terms of your mental health or? No, how am I doing with the chat so far? I'm not, go I'm not going in those directions, am I? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I think you let me speak, which is absolutely great. But I think I'm dragging the, the chat into a very uh, fallen <laughs> form than you um, intend this to be. <laughs> now, the only thing I would like, to, um, the main thing I would like to add on what you said there in terms of, now, this is a thing that I've become aware of myself and like looking at others. I get the feeling sometimes if people show off too much, it's like they're trying to cover for something that they feel insecure of. Like I hear many stories of like people talking to people that are famous who are miserable and they boast about this and that. Or I, I see people posting about being successful that, or I see even like a lot of people that come across as loud and confident and like sometimes you think they're amazing, they're perfect and all that. But when you get to look below the surface, it's often to overcome like a weakness or insecurity you have. Or sometimes if a man's too masculine or he's too, ooh, maybe he is, as you would say. Yeah, it is all true, but it doesn't change how you function. So even yeah. though you can rationalize by saying, you know what, this is probably just a sign of the other comments um, manifesting their insecurity, it doesn't necessarily negate you react with jealousy. Oh, yes, Even yes, so. yes. But I'm and saying, but it's true. It, so, so I fairly early on, I noticed that, for example, people break about getting signed to an agency, but they never break about they're being dumped by an agency. Just <laughs> people would put on Instagram saying, hey, what a lovely, beautiful marriage ceremony. I couldn't wish for a better partner. A year or two later, when their partner cheated on them and, and there is a massive divorce, they wouldn't post it. If only there is a law saying that if you are going to brag about the positive, <laughs> you are contractually obliged to advertise your misery and tragedy. So let people know you don't have a perfect life, right? But the world doesn't operate that way. So even though your brain tells you, whatever you see the rosy painted picture is not 100% truth, it still doesn't change the fact how you will be affected in terms of your mood and your jealousy and everything, everything else. So I completely understand a lot of things I see in the bravado is just people only telling you the, the good side and they don't tell you the other side of truth, but you don't know how much the other side is and you still react to that 
automatically. And I, I had to chose to filter it and or shutting it down. And everyone functioned in a different way. So instead of um, saying that, oh, uh, there's a reason for everything, I won't be affected by this, it's more practical to say, how do you make sure you wouldn't be affected by this to that extent? Okay. <laughs> okay, cool. No, uh, now, the thing is, what I often do at the end of the podcast is I ask, how do people um, find out about you and your work? Uh, you've sent me the link tree and I'll post it in the podcast. But like, what's the best way to find out about Quan Wen? If like, I don't know if it's a hot guy saying, what there, mate? Let's find out about you. <laughs> or maybe if it's a lady, it's like, oh my God, I want to be friends with this guy. Let's go clubbing. Or if someone wants to be a good, big comedy fan, how do they find out about you? Uh, well, naturally, <laughs> I should update the geek whereabout on my, um, on my website a bit more often, <laughs> which I haven't, because I've, <laughs> only, I've only started using my Instagram account from late last year, noti- noticing the trend. Before that, I only had Facebook and Twitter. And I think very few young people use Facebook. And sometimes when I try to give out the Twitter handle, I had this response from people, ooh, who still use Twitter? <laughs> That's really depressing. So I identified for a very long time, Instagram would make me slightly unhappy. I refused to sign it up. But last year, I realized it's not possible anymore. I have to use it. So now for the most up-to-date stuff, I probably put it on Instagram. I would try to update my gig whereabout, but I don't gig all the time. And quite often I'm out of London as well. Uh, so when there are important gigs, I would definitely, in London, for example, I would put it on my website and I, on my Instagram account. Um, but I would be more happy if people can, can start listening to the podcast. I started about a um, couple months ago. It's called Comedy with an Accent. I think this is the latest project with my highest level of enthusiasm and passion. And so I haven't got bored of it yet. Um, in terms of gigs, there will be big, important gigs now and then. Maybe I'll pop up somewhere doing some new jokes, but I don't go out every single night. So I would try to put the good gigs on my website uh, as a refresher, yes. Okay, so guys, make sure you listen to Comedy of the Accent. I, I may go on there, but I'll put on my Cockney accent or I'll do an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. I'll go, hello, Quan, that's my little voice. Oh my God, it's the complete opposite of what I try to achieve. <laughs> or if I go, what, hey, mate? I'm from fucking London. You know what I fucking mean, mate? You fucking what? Or, no, what? I just want to put the caveat, the, the, the podcast is not about asking people to do certain accent is actually a discussion about um, how do comics work with their accent. <laughs> but sometimes you cannot eliminate them. So you have to make them a tool rather than a sort of something that hinders you from achieving comedy effects. So it's a discussion, slightly more geeky in a way, but it's fun. <laughs> well, so that, that, that's, that's, that's me in the end. I'm going to do a little clap. And let me know if you can hear it, Quan, okay? Yeah. Uh, a clap. Here we go. A clap sound. I can only hear the keyboard clicking. Did you hear that? Okay. <laughs> so this is what it is. This is what it is. Yes, I can hear this now. <laughs> okay. Very post-production. <laughs> well that's that's been the end of the podcast um hope you've enjoyed Quan. 
Quan, Wayne, if you like the episode, share it with your friends, subscribe, give us a five star view on Amazon or iTunes. And guys, if you can donate to the Patreon, uh, my suggestion is £50, okay? <laughs> guys, I'll see you in the next episode. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank <music> you.